0: I want to start the talk tonight with a story within a story. And the story is from a book it's called Another Heart in His Hand and it's by an author J.J. J. Gold and the whole book is an ongoing dialogue between two men, a mentor and a mentee. And in part of their dialogue the mentor is telling the mentee about a French film. The film is called The Valley Obscured by Clouds. And in this French film, uh, the basic storyline is that it's a group of people um, traveling on expedition in New Guinea. And at one point, one of the travelers in this film has a very difficult time, and she's feeling incredibly disconnected from her home culture, probably from her fellow travelers, etc. I can't imagine that a few of you haven't felt similar disconnect in an unfamiliar realm, uh, being here on retreat. So she was feeling disconnected, and her friend in this film used this analogy to explain separateness to her friend who was struggling with feeling disconnected and she said there is the ocean and the ocean is love and there is a bottle floating in the ocean the bottle is full of water the bottle is you and if you break it there is no bottle alone there is just the ocean so Then the mentor goes on to say to the mentee in this story, in the book, It's so traumatic, the mentor says, for us to feel the cap on our bottle loosening even one sixteenth of an inch. We feel like it's all falling apart, and in a way that is what's happening. All the water in us is ocean water, and all the water outside us is ocean water. It's all ocean water. Then there's this bottle. There's this I, me, you, what I want, what I need, what I like, what I don't like, what I think, what I don't think, and all this separate bottle business. The bottle breaks, and the water goes into the ocean. That breaking of the bottle is not only this physical death that we arrive at after some number of years. That breaking also happens in moments. This is my favorite line from the mentor to the mentee. He says, And I would be surprised if you haven't experienced to some degree a small breaking of that bottle. Am I right? Would you be here if that cap of your bottle hadn't loosened at least a sixteenth of an inch? Today is the darkest day of the year and you know, what grace that it was filled with sunshine. It's so dark tonight and it's so cold, I'm sure you noticed as you went out to uh, stretch and uh, various things before the Dharma talk, there's a Christmas to the air. Really cold, really dark, and yet I can still feel the visceral memory of the sunshine on my face today as I walked up and down in the dining hall. And the joy of walking back up the hill and seeing so many of you laying out in the sun, just drinking in the light. It's great that we can do that externally. It reminds us that we can do it internally as well. And hopefully you have been this day of the solstice. What I want to talk about tonight are the qualities of fear and love. And they're you could say, archetypally qualities that describe perhaps darkness and light. They're universal qualities. Uh, No one is left out of being touched by these qualities. So I want to talk about befriending fear, transforming fear, um, the purification aspects, and then the cultivation aspects as well um, of... We could call it love. We could call it metta. Sometimes I think the best definition for this word metta is not love, but just a basic friendliness. It's so simple. And then we don't need to look for anything special, not some big gushing, amazing experience, just a moment of basic friendliness. But first we need to call in this archetypal element of fear. I'm sure for many of you, there's no need to call it in. It's been lingering around all day, and some of you have shared that in our discussions. It comes and it goes. So, interestingly, one of the very best definitions that I've ever read about fear comes from this novel that maybe you heard about or read a number of years ago. It's called The Life of Pi. You remember that one? Some of you maybe do? Yeah. So, the storyline of this novel is that there's a shipwreck. So, the, the novel itself is uh, archetypal, and uh, John talked about the train wreck the first day when we arrived. So, this one's a shipwreck. And, of course, one raft survives. And on this raft, there is a man and three companions. And the three companions are an orangutan, a hyena, which quickly gets eaten, and Richard Parker. And those of you that know the story, remember that Richard Parker was a 450-pound Bengali tiger with this man on this raft. You know, so we think we have it hard in the difficult moments, and you know we're working with fear. You can imagine the raft with the 450-pound Bengali tiger. So this is uh, this man on this raft. He says, "'I must say a word about fear,' It is life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. It is a clever, treacherous adversary, how well I know. It has no decency, it respects no law or convention, and it shows no mercy. Fear goes for your weakest spot, which it seems to find with unerring ease. Have you noticed? It begins in your mind always. One moment you are feeling calm, self-possessed, happy. Then fear, disguised in the garb of a mild-mannered doubt, slips into your mind like a spy. Doubt meets disbelief, and disbelief tries to push it out. But disbelief is a poorly armed foot soldier. Doubt does away with it with little trouble. You become anxious. Reason then comes in to do battle for you. You're reassured. Reason is fully equipped with the latest weapons technology. But, to your amazement, despite superior tactics and a number of undeniable victories, Reason, too, is laid low. You feel yourself weakening, wavering. Your anxiety becomes dread. Quickly, you make rash decisions. You dismiss your latest allies, hope and trust there you've defeated yourself. Fear, which is but an impression, has actually triumphed over you. you know? And that's exactly what we ha- happens when we sit here. We're sitting here all as well, happy, content, and then some little doubt comes in and, and starts to produce an anxiety. And then we try to figure it out. And then we think we've got it. And then it comes and wipes us out. So, that's the good news? No, there's better news than that. When talking about how the self is built on basic fear, um, I like to think about two pieces. And one piece is the basic fear, and one piece I like to think of more as basic goodness. So every single one of us, as animal human beings living a life, uh, has these components of basic fear and basic goodness. And the way that basic fear is birthed is right at the beginning of our selfing process. As soon as we have a moment of ignorance, uh, that moment of ignorance conditions what I call a dual split. Um, Immediately there is the known and the knower, And, you know, I and mine. And out of that, um, as soon as we get this sense that we could say, I am. And it's before we fill in the blank. I am this, I am that. Just the sense of I am. There's already these energies of asserting that I and protecting that I. And out of that, we actually uh, start to shoot arrows. As Donald was talking about from the teaching of the Buddha last night, that there's this basic level of suffering that we have as human beings living a life, and then we expand upon it and start shooting endless amounts of arrows at ourselves. So the arrows of, I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, how we judge ourselves, so many of you have been talking about the pain of that, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And from this, we create ourselves endlessly, And then there's this problem that we take who we think we are to be real and solid um, and true. We could have the same sense of self, and if we held it more lightly, there'd be a lot more freedom. But we get really wrapped up in it and say, this is me, this is mine. And out of that, we create our world. And it's a world based on hope and fear. We hope that it's going to work out, and we fear that it won't, whatever it is. And you could fill in your blank today about what your major event was that you were hoping was going to work out. And of course, then there was the fear that it wasn't going to work out. And so every time the solid, believed-in sense of self takes any kind of hit, it's scary and threatening. And we once again, move into protection and assertion. And that's just how it works. And it's actually a relief to be sitting here in a room full of people who can acknowledge this, that we could feel the people at our sides and at our back and in front of us and realize, oh, we're all in this together. We all belong in this human reality uh, that includes fear Now, as I said, we also start with basic goodness, so it includes love. The story doesn't stop there, and that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And, of course, it doesn't stop with us. We build whole communities out of this. We build whole cultures out of this. And I was talking with Donald over dinner, and he said, what are you going to talk about tonight? And I said, fear and love. And he said, oh, I heard a quote recently, so I'll repeat it, because it's how it works on a systems level. And the quote was talking about our stock market system. And somebody said this quote soon after the European stock market started to really fall apart. And the comment was, ah... Our world markets uh, basically run on greed and fear. And right now, we're living in fear. So we might think this fear is ours, and it may seem really personal. But then there's the field that we live in. And and these archetypal energies of greed and fear and, you know, I and mine and the confusion about that are, are part of our human field. And fortunately, it doesn't end there. Perhaps these global movements of young people and people of all ages who are saying, enough, we would like to find a middle way. You know, we'd like to find a way out of these extremes of greed and fear. is this response of basic goodness you know, and the longing for connection that's authentic um, and that isn't consumed, you know, isn't caught. So it's an interesting time we live in very full of potential. There's a quote that's attributed to Maha Gosananda that I use almost every day of my life that explains this quite well. So it's part of my daily practice, just say this quote to myself, to remind myself how the self is built and how we could bring freedom and heart to this process and wake up. And Maha Gosananda was often said about him, he's no longer alive, but um, a a monk, and often called the Gandhi of Cambodia, did amazing activist work with the refugees um, after all of the devastation in that culture um, a number of decades ago, and would bring together groups of thousands of people, thousands, tens of thousands of people, and do loving-kindness practice with them. Uh, and then attend to the community and the children and the education and the spiritual development. So very spiritually um, active in the world. And the quote is this, the thought becomes the word, the word transforms into the deed, the deed hardens into the character and the character manifests as the destiny. So watch your thoughts with care and let them spring from love out of respect for all beings. It's so beautiful, and even though I say it to myself multiple times of day, every day of my life, still, when I just said it, I could feel the emotion. You know? That's how we create ourselves. That's how we create the world. And if we watch our thoughts with care and let them spring from love, out of respect for all beings, What kind of world might manifest? That's what we're doing here, moment by moment. It might not seem like much. I think it is. So I want to talk about four aspects of, you could say, befriending fear and, and cultivating love. And those four aspects are naming it, working with it in the body, cultivating loving kindness, and this mysterious process that we label letting go, um, which sounds like such a solid thing, and it's such a verb, It's the letting go ongoing. And even though I'm going to talk about this tonight in terms of love and fear, I also want to acknowledge that I have found these aspects helpful in um, working with any kind of difficult emotions uh, at all. And certainly with attending to the five so-called hindrances to our practice, which you all have been sharing in our small groups Uh, with such care. So to name those five in case you haven't heard them before or you've forgotten one of them, and to know that these also attend to these challenges that we find in early days of retreat. So what those five are, are the mind that wants incessantly and absolutely anything, Uh, the mind that doesn't want, the mind that is fearful, aversive, Then there is the mind-body system that is sleepy. I know many of you know that one. And the opposite, the mind-body system that is restless. And then the fifth is doubt. So even though the traditional antidotes to these so-called hindrances to practice might be slightly different, all of these things work. The first piece is naming it and saying hello to fear. So again, just a quick quote back to the life of Pi. The matter is difficult to put into words, for fear, real fear, such as it shakes you to your foundation, such as you feel when you are brought face to face with your mortal end, nestles in your memory like a gangrene. (laughs) It seeks to rot everything, even the words with which you speak of it. You must fight hard to shine the light of words upon it. Because if you don't, if your fear becomes a wordless darkness that you avoid, perhaps even manage to forget, you open yourself to further attacks of fear because you never truly fought the opponent who defeated you. It's a powerful statement. The darkness aspect of fear and the light of this simple transformative quality that we call mindfulness. So I'll tell you my favorite story about mindfulness, bringing mindfulness to fear. And it's a true story. And it's about a father and his son. And the son at the time of the story was about, I think, 8 or 10 years old. They were off on a weekend hike. And they were hiking in a forested area. And they hiked some distance. Uh, The son was very enthusiastic about the hike. And they were hiking uphill. And the day was ebbing. I think it might have been wintertime. And the sun was starting to go down, and they realized they needed to turn back. And they turned back. They were heading down the hill. And the forest was getting thicker and thicker as they headed down the hill. And, of course, what happened? The little boy started getting anxious. And at first, he didn't really want to admit it the same way that we don't. And so he got a little bit restless. And sometimes restlessness in the body is uh, you know, a finger pointing to a deeper anxiousness to be aware of that. He started getting restless. He started saying things like kids say, are we almost there yet, dad? Any of us that are parents or work with kids know that line. And the father said, no son, we're not quite there yet. You know, keep the faith, let's keep going down the hill. And finally, the little boy just froze up. Fear stopped him in his tracks. And the father stopped and the kid was standing there and he just said dad i'm afraid it was getting really dark in the woods and the father was a practitioner and he looked at his son and he said oh son i understand i've been afraid too sometimes it's scary in the woods you know but but i have you know i have something that really helps me do you want to hear what it is and the little boy said yeah tell me what it is and so the father looked at the son and said, well, what I do when I feel afraid is I say, hello, fear. And the kid kind of looked at his dad with a quizzical look on his face. Dad? You know, I was probably expecting a hug or some kind of different words of reassurance. I don't know what the kid was expecting. But the father just said, no, no, I just say, hello, fear. Try it, son. Why don't you try it? You try saying hello to your fear. And Well, I don't know, Dad. No, no, try it, try it. We'll say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. Hello, fear. They kind of said it, and the kids said it really quietly. And father said, no, no, say it a little louder. Hello, fear. The kids said, hello, fear. And pretty soon they're running down the hill saying, hello, fear, at the top of their lungs. Just running down the hill. That which had frozen this child became something that could be befriended. So the power of mindfulness and this friendliness and caring aspect. That would be a lovely story in and of itself, but it's not the end of the story. The end of the story happened several months later, and it was summer at this time, and it was night, and the father and the son were at their home, and the son was in the backyard playing in the dark. The father didn't hear the son for a little while and so he opened the sliding glass door and was about to call son son are you okay fear arose in him you know and, and that happens. some of us are carrying a lot of uh, fear and deep caring about loved ones while we sit here you know so the father was feeling that opened the door was about to call out but in the pause before he called out to his son he heard a voice and the voice was his son and the voice said this hello fear And the father just stood there, my son, I can just imagine him, my son, he understood to say hello to fear. And he didn't say anything. And two minutes later, he hears his son's voice again. His son says, goodbye, fear. Now, that's powerful because that combines mindfulness, this quality of sati, or remembering, or recollecting the attention around the present moment, experience and it combines it with this quality of panya or wisdom and my root teacher from uh, thailand would talk a lot about how mindfulness itself is important but when mindfulness is combined with panya when it's combined the sati panya or mindfulness wisdom that's The leaping off point for the awakening of the mind heart system. And so the mindfulness wasn't just aware of what was going on, but saw the wisdom of, ah, the fear arose, it lived its life, and it passed away. And this kid was able to say goodbye, fear. Now, of course, that was not a mature understanding in an eight year old. But as we're here in this community, we can begin to have a very mature understanding of the arising and passing away of these difficult qualities of mind and heart. And this satipanya is where uh, our freedom gets born from. So it's very important to understand then there's fear in the body, right? And many of you have been describing fear in the body beautifully, from low-grade anxiousness to full-blown anxiety attacks to uh, subtle worries and, and just the, all the different kind of flavors of fear. Again, the, the life of Pi, incredible uh, definition An explanation of fear in the body. Fear next turns fully to your body, which is already aware that something terribly wrong is going on. Already your lungs have flown away like a bird and your guts have slithered away like a snake. Now your tongue drops dead like an opossum, while your jaw begins to gallop on the spot. Your ears go deaf. Your muscles begin to shiver as if they had malaria and your knees to shake as though they were dancing. Your heart strains too hard while your sphincter relaxes too much. And so with the rest of your body, every part of you in the manner most suited to it falls apart. Only your eyes work well. Eyes always pay proper attention to fear. Very clear explanation. And, you know, may that you have not had to have every one of those manifestations of fear in the body at the same time. You know, because uh, he was sitting there with a 450 pound Bengali tiger. But we know as we sit here that the tiger lives inside sometimes. And then we look out through those glasses of fear and the whole world seems scary. You know, It's very vulnerable. It lives in the body. So, in terms of the mindfulness of the nervous system level, our physiological level, first we can talk about the fight-flight-freeze uh, level. You know? And we think, oh, we're, we're coming here to, to meditate and it's supposed to be very high-end, right? But what we get into is actually the oldest centers of our humanness. And that's the reptilian brain. So fight-flight-freeze comes and visits. We know this. And the cousins to that are anger and numbness. And those come too. So I have a fascination right now and an ongoing investigation of what I'm calling mindfulness of the nervous system itself. And looking at different techniques to bring mindfulness to challenging mind states and challenging emotions, to actually remind the nervous system how to settle and how to relax and that there isn't a 450-pound Bengali tiger in the room here, fortunately. Uh, This is of great interest to me. So I'll mention Um, A couple of techniques that you might find helpful at certain points in this retreat, in your life, in other retreats, because eventually these things are going to come and visit. And the question is, how do we want to meet them? How do we want to meet the challenges? The first one is a meditation instruction that, unless you have been a student of mine, you've probably never heard before, because it's counterintuitive to the way that we train. So let's say, for example, you're sitting on your cushion and all is well and then all of a sudden there's some sort of doubt and it bursts into an anxiety and all of a sudden the whole system's filled with fear for no real good reason. Of course the mind comes up with an object for the fear because that's what the thinking habitual mind does, but really it's just the fear. And sometimes we can drop to that level where, oh yeah, I came up with a reason for it, but actually it's just the fear. So let's say that comes and visits you. I'm sure for some of you uh, it has. And for the rest of us it will. One thing that can be really helpful is to actually open your eyes and look around. Now again, mindfulness of the nervous system uh, techniques are not conceptual. They're not for the adult mind. They're for the reptilian mind. So everything I'm about to say is so obvious that you're going to kind of wonder. Um, but that's why. So the technique is to open your eyes and actually look around and turn your neck and look all the way around. You know, while you're sitting in the meditation hall, everyone else will have their eyes closed, you know, so don't look at other people in the eye, but just look around. Notice where the exits are. Obviously, every one of us knows where the exits are, but on a nervous system level, our eyes Remember the definition in the life of Pi when we're overcome by fear, only the eyes work well. And it's true. So if we use the eyes and use the neck and look and see, amazing, there are three different exits, four different exits in this room. You know? And then you might take some time and look out the window and just find a pleasant view. Uh, Again, so that we realize there's more than this fear. The fear is going on, it's living, it's arising, it's currently in its life cycle, it will pass away. And there's the beauty of the nature that we're surrounded by. There's something larger than the fear. This actually starts to settle our whole system from the inside. It's just a simple technique. Another simple technique to help settle the nervous system with this dear friend fear Um, I think about it coming from the life story of the Buddha and I think about Siddhartha sitting under that Bodhi tree having set the intention to sit there until he either awoke completely or passed away It's an incredible intention for awakening and of course he was bombarded by everything that clouded that sense of awakeness that was about to shine forth. So he was bombarded by wanting, he was bombarded by tremendous fear, he was bombarded by um, doubt that would have shaken any of us right out the retreat doors, Uh, and he sat. And when the doubt came that was the strongest visitor for him in his vigil under the Bodhi tree, what did he do? He took his right hand and he put it on the earth and he said, the earth is my witness to my basic integrity, to countless amounts of time spent cultivating this good heart and clear mind. And the earth is my witness to awakening and settled and grounded. And then what happened, right? Something shifted so irrevocably in his mind-body system that what manifested is what we now call the Buddha. Through a human body. A human body that still hurt and got sick and got old and died after he was enlightened. It's a very real process, this enlightenment process. It's very organic. So he put his hand on the earth and it's a great thing to do when we're being rocked inside. So just simply put your right hand on the earth and connect with this lineage of wisdom that has said, ah, we can trust the earth to be our witness to our birthright to awaken. You know? And it also interestingly helps ground the nervous system because anxiety and fear energy tend to move up. And so if we bring mindfulness down and ground, it again creates more space and more range so that we're not just caught in the, oh, oh, oh. you know, when we get startled, we go, oh. that's what we do. So, ah, Put our hand on the earth and remember that there's more than that startle response. So fear in the body, you know, an awakening in the body with the fear. Then there's cultivating loving kindness. And... We didn't mention when we introduced or reintroduced you to the loving kindness instructions yesterday the fact that the Buddha actually originally taught loving kindness as an antidote to fear. So I thought I would tell that story this evening, and some of you know it, and some of you probably don't. I think of these as Buddhist bedtime stories. So, once upon a time, Long, long ago, 2,550-something years ago, in ancient India, a group of monks was about to start a rains retreat. And the reason that rains retreat started is because when monsoon comes in India, to this day it's very hard to travel during the monsoons. The rain just comes in sheets and... Uh, unbelievable amount of water element so best to stay in one place you know? I was remembering how last year at the solstice retreat uh, I had just arrived back from practicing and living for six months in Asia including four months in India and you know so it was a monsoon the whole time there and then I arrived back here I was here about five days before I taught the solstice retreat and it was monsooning here as well, just raining. Those of you that were here, since many of you were, have done this retreat many years, just raining, raining, raining every day. So I hope that you're enjoying the sun. But this is a story about monsoon and fear. So the monks found a village in the foothills of the Himalayas that was a conducive place for their meditation retreat. There was a village nearby, and the villagers were friendly. And they were very happy to provide food for these monastics during their retreat. And they even built kutis, or small meditation huts, for each monastic. And so the monks went to their teacher, who was Sakyamuni Buddha, and said, Please, uh, please teacher, give me some instructions for my retreat. And the Buddha instructed them in concentration practice, this particular rains retreat. And they took their instructions, and they went up to their small cabins, and began to meditate. And all was going very well until, I mean, this is a story, right? So there's going to be some challenge, until the local deva population decided that the monks had overstayed their welcome. So who are the devas? A western equivalent of devas would be angels, uh, I'm not asking you to believe in devas, this is a story, but I kind of like to think about it as... Uh, there's more than there appears. You know? There's more energetic force in the universe than meets the eye. So perhaps we could call some of these devas, if we liked. Okay? So there's this group of devas who lived in this forest, and they thought the monks were just coming for a few days, and then they stayed. And so, the first thing that they did was produced frightening sounds. And it's in the forest, so you can imagine if you've ever done walking meditation back here in the woods, and you hear the crack, you know, or you've been backpacking, and the starter response, but the monks kept meditating, so the devas amped it up, and they started producing terrible smells to disturb the monks and get them out of this forest. But the monks were diligent, and their minds were concentrated, and so they kept going. So the devas amped it up one more level, and they somehow produced mind-to-mind frightening images in the minds of these monks, which completely freaked the monks out, and they ran down the foothills of the Himalayas to where their teacher, the Buddha, was saying, and said, teacher, teacher, you have to give us another place to practice. This place is no good. We're scared. There's all this scary stuff going on. Yeah. And I think about it, you know, they had, they had cabins, they had foods, it was a lovely grove of woods. And it's kind of the same thing we do here. Here we are, I mean, are conditions not ideal? You know, three lovingly cooked meals a day, warm dorms, a beautiful meditation hall. And how many times have we thought to ourselves, I need a better place to meditate, <laughs> better cushion, less noise. I mean, you fill in your own blank. You know, that's what we do, and that's what the monks did. And the Buddha said, my friends, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry, that's the perfect place for you to meditate, and have I got a practice for you, loving kindness. You know, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. And that's the beginning of the metta sutta. And so we don't know exactly the instructions of loving kindness that the Buddha gave those monks. But we know the spirit from the metta sutta, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. You know, so we developed the phrases out of that over time. And so the story concludes that the monks go back up the hill, they re-inhabit their huts, Uh, they continue with their concentration practice, but this time it's using the vehicle of loving-kindness because loving-kindness focuses the mind around basic friendliness. And as these monks focused their minds around basic friendliness, their minds and hearts opened, and the impact on the devas was so strong that the devas became their protectors for their practice. So that's a lovely story, but I actually think it's our story. Because when we bring a basic friendliness to these internal and sometimes external challenges that cause us fear, through that very process, uh, that which was a hindrance can actually become our protector. Because often these defensive habits of fear or anger or guilt or whatever it is, they actually got born and developed quite a lot of strength at periods in our lives when we didn't have other tools available to us. So the way that I think about it is, On one hand, fear can be a very destructive force. On the other hand, we could give it the deepest bow of respect that it protects our very hearts and lives. And in that way, it's our protector. And if we're not fighting it and we're not judging it, then we can wake up right through it by bringing basic friendliness to that thing that we thought was a problem in our practice. Right there. Nothing special. You don't need a better meditation to wake up. I'll share with you a story by the poet David White. And this is a true story. It's, it's from, from his life. And again, there's a way that we work with it internally. There's a way that we work with it externally. So this is his process of Acknowledging fear, befriending fear, um, bringing mindfulness to the nervous system, and opening to the heart of loving kindness. It's a story that happened to him when he was on a trek, on a pilgrimage in the Nepali Himalayas. And he was with a group of people, and they had come to a village, and they had heard that in this village there was a temple. And in the temple, there were uh, these special statues of some sort. Nobody really told them what exactly was special about them, but they'd heard that the statues were special, and they were hoping to catch a glimpse of these statues. And so they asked around in the village, and sure enough, there was um, an older gentleman of the village who was willing to hike them up to the top of this particular mountain and unlock the temple and um, allow them to bear witness to these statues. So they made the hike, and the older gentle- gentleman opened the door, and it was, of course, very dark inside this temple. Uh, no electricity had been closed up for a long time. These were ancient statues, ancient temple. And so he walked in, and he noticed the nervousness of the dark, you know, and he was walking next to his friend, And it's interesting, I'll just read this part to you. He says, I was standing next to what I thought was a friend talking when suddenly my eyes getting used to the dark caught a first glimpse of the person to whom I was actually talking. It was no person at all, but a grim grimacing pair of eyes and an aggressive mouth leering at me in the dark, a skull cut pressed to its lips. I just about leapt out of my skin into the dark dusty air with surprise and fear. So what he had come into contact with was a protector image at the front of this temple, and the image was that of Vajrapani. And Vajrapani means the one who carries the thunderbolt. And the way that he described it was, you know, as if he'd been struck by a thunderbolt. He said, ah, the protector, Vajrapani, did its work. So this was a temple in the Tibetan lineage of Buddhism. And always at the front of the temples, there are protector images, this Vajrapani. As an electric sweat broke out of my forehead, the hair on the nape of my neck began to subside, and my anatomic nervous system slowly returned to normal. I was very glad of the enclosing darkness and its ability to hide my momentary panic from the rest of the group. It's amazing how, when we take fear personally, there's all this shame. And this feeling that somehow we did something wrong. This is part of the human condition. And he went through that in that moment. I was a little embarrassed. What was that fear, I asked myself? The old boogeyman in the dark? It had certainly taken me by surprise. And then he makes an interesting statement. In an unguarded moment, the guardian figure, Vajrapani, had sought out and found the part of me that was ready to be afraid. That's interesting. What part of us is ready to be afraid? So he moves through that process and he moves through the fear and he settles back down and they find a flashlight, which is always helpful. You know, we need external tools and then when we sit here in the silence we need internal flashlights shine the light of mindfulness and metta. And they come around the corner to where the statues are. We all looked up at once. We were all affected at once. It seemed as if a wave or tremor of recognition passed through the group. And there was an audible sigh as we all saw the faces of the statues at exactly the same time. It was as if we were all being made suddenly welcome to a surprise party by a crowd of happy, hospitable strangers. And then he talks about how the carved faces on these statues for him felt intimately familiar. He'd never seen them before, but the statues started to manifest as his great aunt and his grandmother and his father. And this feeling of welcome and connection, they were just statues. Perception could have worked any which way in that moment. He could have been frightened again, but instead there was this feeling of connection and of wholeness and of oneness that overtook not just him, but the entire group, you know? And it's like that in our own practice. We sit and the fear or the difficulties come and then we need to name them and shine the flashlight of mindfulness. See if there's any wisdom available to be mind, welcome the parts of us that we don't want to welcome into the hall, you know, that we don't want to welcome into our own hearts. Um, that friendliness, and then from this feeling of false separation, which is born out of this experience of duality, we come back into wholeness, and the wholeness is connected. The false separation dissolves, and the monastic uh, Narada Tara has a beautiful quote, just a short quote about that I'll share with you, and he says, separation evaporates and oneness is revealed. I just like that. It's a visceral kind of quote. Separation evaporates into thin air. I thought I was separate. You know, I thought I didn't belong. And then oneness is revealed. And the oneness has so much wisdom. And then there's letting go. Sometimes letting go looks like separation evaporates and oneness is revealed. What has been let go of is the separation. And I'm very aware that in talking about letting go, um, not just is it a verb and not just is it mysterious, but it almost demands an entire Dharma talk. So I'm just going to speak to a couple of aspects about letting go that are Uh, very alive for me in my own practice right now. First, I want to share a quote, and it's a quote about the spirit that we bring to our work here uh, and in this process of letting go. So we could call this in the spirit of wise effort. And the quote is the first discourse from the connected discourses of the Buddha. So it's the words of the Buddha. And a student came to the Buddha one day and he said, Sir, how did you cross the flood? So what the student was asking was, how did you cross the flood of difficulty in your own practice? How did you cross the flood of, uh, we could say, samsaric existence, which is the repetitive cycles of these challenges? It's a simple way to put it. How did you cross the flood? And the Buddha looked at the student and he said, Ah, I'll tell you how I crossed the flood. By not lingering, I'm sorry. Yeah, by not lingering and not hurrying, I crossed the flood. For when I lingered, I sank. And when I hurried, I was swept away. By not lingering and not hurrying, I crossed the flood and I reached the far shore. You know and that's what happens when we linger and we don't uh, apply enough ardent passionate effort we kind of sink and sometimes we sink into the mire of sloth and torpor uh, and sometimes we sink into doubts is it really worth all this effort and we sink There's many different manifestations of sinking and when we hurry uh, and as, as some have said, oh, this is such a short retreat. I, I, I really have to hurry up and get to wherever it is I'm going. We are swept away. You know, we're lost in struggle and we're swept away and we've lost uh, our base. You know? So it's a beautiful teaching from the Buddha and speaks a lot about the quality that we want to bring to the practice. And out of that, there's this trust that letting go as a process happens on its own. And we condition the process to arise by not hurrying and not lingering. Another aspect of wise effort in terms of letting go are these qualities of cultivating the wholesome and um, releasing that which is no longer wholesome for us. And a story that I quite like about how this quality works in practice is a story from the Native American tradition. And it's a story of a grandfather and his grandson. And they are sitting one day, and the grandfather turns to the grandson and says, you know, my um, grandson, uh, there are two wolves living inside of me, and they're having a fight. And the grandson looks at the grandfather and says, well, what are, who are the wolves? What are their names? And the grandfather says to the grandson, well, you know, one wolf is named uh, anger and fear and confusion and resentment and despair and hopelessness, and the list goes on and on and on. And the other wolf's name is love and compassion and wisdom and clarity and patience and truthfulness and integrity, and the list goes on and on. And the grandson looks at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which wolf wins? And those of you that know the punchline of the story, the grandfather looks at him and says, the one I feed wins. And we know it's true because we've sat here long enough to know it's true. The one we feed wins. So what are we going to feed? What is it we really want to call forth from our being that's available but just obscured by clouds? What do we want to call forth during this time? You know? And what do we want to say? You know, Hello, and I'm not going to feed that storyline again. I've already heard you. I know how that story ends. I've gone there a million times. You know? This wise effort. Sometimes letting go is visceral and is felt much more in the body. And I've been reflecting recently on a a story about my friend, dear friend of mine, long-term meditator, uh, a very beautiful, mature meditation practice. And she told me a story a long time ago that I forgot about until recently, and I've been reflecting on this story recently. It's a story about letting go. And it happened here at Spirit Rock. It actually happened on the hill uh, just above the Opeka building on a retreat. And she was struggling with something or other, and I'm sure that it somehow involved fear, because whenever we struggle, fear is always involved some way or another. And she really got bogged down. You know, just, I can't do this anymore. Giving up. And giving up is a pregnant place in practice, because we're terrified to do it. But sometimes if we actually let go and give up, that which is ready to be born anew then has space to rise. So she had a moment of giving up. And she decided to take a walk up the hill. And she's walking up the hill and her steps are heavy. Just dragging her body up the hill. Oh, this is so hard. I can't believe this retreat. I'm sure some of you have experienced this on this retreat or other retreats. Dragging herself up the hill. And then all of a sudden, halfway up the hill, this thought, arises you know an insight really and the thought was honey it's okay drop the load and in a moment of grace that was conditioned by all her prior practice the load dropped and a smile came to her face out of nowhere and her body wasn't heavy and she walked up the hill just filled with well-being This wasn't random. It was conditioned by every moment of mindfulness and caring that she'd ever brought to experience. But when the letting go happens, we're not in charge of it. We can only drink it in, drink it in. You know, and then we learn how to live it over time and we're all in that process. And so I'll just share with you a quote and it's a really it's a practice by Pema Chodron and she talks about the three difficult practices. Number one, to recognize your neurosis as neurosis. Number two, then do not do the habitual thing but do something different to interrupt the habit. And number three, to make this practice a way of life. You know? That's what we're doing here. So, just in closing, I was looking this afternoon at this quote about the darkness and the light by Marion Williamson. She says, Our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Who are you not to be? <laughs> you are a child of God. Your plain, small does not serve the world. liberates others. This is the potential of our practice and the potential of what we have to offer out of our practice. Thank you so much for your practice. So that is what I have to offer for your reflection this evening. And um, as always, uh, such gratitude for the kindness of your attention.